You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road in Hillsboro, North Carolina. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. So we get started today. Here's, here's the question. How hard is it to walk by faith and not by sight? Ugh. Had to ask that one, didn't you? Yeah, it, it can be hard, can't it? Uh, when, you, when you think about what we see around us, we, we struggle with, okay, how am I supposed to put sight and uh, what I see around me, how am I supposed to put that in the context of trusting God with everything that I am and having a faith to move forward? So how am I supposed to do that? Uh, I was looking as there was a, um, a phrase in one of the songs earlier that, that talked about um, this picture out of Ezekiel chapter 37. And I don't know if you remember the story. Basically, Ezekiel is given this vision of these dry bones, and, and it says this. He says, He caused me to pass, and he's talking about this valley full of dry bones. Behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry, so they were very dead. They're dry bones. There's, there's not a whole lot of life there at all. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. That's a good answer. O Lord God, you know. And so, so Ezekiel said, Oh, you do. I don't. Because, because you don't want to really say, God, you're not able to do something. You, know, you don't want to do that, do you? Say, no. You say, God can do anything he wants to. And so it, it's that argument of, can God make a rock that's too big for him to move? Heard that one? And so, so you got that going on. He says, again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That says the, the Lord God to these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come alive, and I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover your skin and put breath in you that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel's getting this picture. Okay, God can do this. And then he says, so I prophesied as I was commanded. So he did what he was asked to do. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, and there was no breath in them. And then he's told, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may come to life. So I prophesied. As he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. What a strange picture. What a strange thing to happen. This vision that is given to Ezekiel, and, and then it goes on and says, this is what the Israel looks like. Israel looks like a bunch of dry bones. And so the question comes for us, if we're going to follow in faith, what does that look like? Ezekiel's given this picture, and it's basically this picture of something that is dead and God brings to life. 
And I would say that if we are not a people of faith, if we do not have this inner passion to say, God, I trust you and I have faith that you'll accomplish what you want to, we are nothing more than just dry bones. Essentially, spiritually, if we don't have some semblance of God, you're able to do this in me and through me, then we might as well just be just like everybody else that doesn't have a relationship with God. We are, we are essentially called to be a people of faith, called to be a people that, that are willing to go places that it would not be normal to go, or to say things that would be, not be normal to say have conversations that are just a little out of our comfort zone. This morning, we're going to get into a passage in, in Mark chapter 5, um, but I want us to, to look back because I want us to catch the progression in Mark 5. Now, you remember, we've talked about this before, that, that Jesus was, in, in Mark 4, he was on, the, on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's doing some teaching. And he's, and he's teaching a great, great group of folks and then decides to get into the boat and he tells those that are, that are going with him, he says, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. And the implication was, we're going to make it. And so they get in the boat. They go partway across the Sea of Galilee and a great wind is stirred up and the waves become really big. And you remember what Jesus was doing? What was he doing? He was sleeping. He was, taking, he was taking a nap. Now, I, and I told you this before, I get it. When you, when you finish teaching on a Sunday, you, you kind of feel like taking a nap. And Jesus was in that spot. You know, maybe he was just that tired. He fell asleep. So he said, sleep in the boat. These waves and winds are coming in. I don't know if there's like this, you know how when a wave hits the boat, that spray comes up over the side and just kind of makes it a little damp? And those of you that have been in any kind of waves or anything, you know how that feels. But it didn't seem to be enough to wake Jesus. And so the, the, those that are in the boat get a little scared, and, and so they go over and they yell at him. Basically tell him, get up. And we don't really know why, but exactly what they had in mind when they were telling him to get up, because all they say is, get up, we're perishing. You need to awaken. And so Jesus does, he calms the sea, calms the wind, everything becomes tranquil, and they stand back and they say, who really is this guy that he commands, in the, wind, he commands the wind and the waves? Who is this Jesus? And, and that's really all we have of that story. We don't, we don't know what any further conversation was. It doesn't really say that Jesus went back to the pillow and fell asleep again doesn't say that. We just don't know. All we get is the arrival on the seashore and the meeting of, a, of another person on that shore that's just kind of out of control. It's a demon-possessed man. The Gerasim demoniac and Jesus have this encounter, this confrontation on the shore. It's a little different picture, but they have this conversation and Jesus is inquiring, who are you? And the demon inside this guy says, we are legion. And they ask for permission to go into the pigs that are close by. And so Jesus says, you have permission. 
They don't want to be tormented. They don't want to be sent somewhere else except for maybe that. And so they get into the pigs. The pigs run down the hill, go in the sea, and 2,000 pigs die. So it's an excellent picture. Bad for the people of the town because they're pig farmers. You know, you take away their livelihood. And so this happens, and, and then we find out that this demoniac is in his right mind. He's sitting there clothed in his right mind, and people come and look, and they say, wait a minute, I recognize him. But he's not like he was before. He's very different because he's clothed and in his right mind. But the people of the town are scared. And they're, they're a little freaked out by this situation because what was normal before, this guy out of control, is now this guy's in control and things are abnormal. It almost seems like it doesn't make sense. So what they, because of their fear, in verse 17 of chapter 5, it says, and they began to implore him to leave their region. And so the people say, no, 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 no. This is too strange for us. We're out of here. Or you need to be out of here. And so they implore Jesus to leave. And they essentially say, you get back in the boat and you go to where you came from. We're fine without you. And they cast off hope. A normal, normal situation, this demoniac says, hey, or the one who had, was a former demoniac or demon-possessed guy. So he, he goes to Jesus. He says, hey, let me come with you. Can I, can I get in a boat and go with you? Which would be normal. And Jesus says, what? No. And there are times when we get told no by God. This case, he says no, but he has a reason for telling him no. He says, no, d don't. You cannot go with us. He said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And so Jesus gives this guy this picture or this, this experience of the mercy of God to his life and the grace of God in his life. And then says, no, you can't leave this region. I'm leaving the region. You can't. You need to stay here and continue to talk about what God has done in your life. Continue to talk about what has happened to you. And so Jesus gets back in the boat and treks across the water again, back to the other side. So you see this crisscross of the, of the Sea of Galilee, and we get to the other side in verse 21. And that's where we're going to start. Because today what we're going to do is we're going to meet two people that have a faith encounter with Jesus that's different from the situations that we've just talked about. Different from the followers of Jesus in the boat who panic and go to Jesus and, and when he wakes up he calms everything and he says, where is your faith? And so Jesus is questioning, where is your faith? I told you we're going to make it, where's your faith? It's different than the demon-possessed guy because he doesn't even ask him about his faith, but it's something where it displays Jesus' authority over that which is spiritual. So not just the physical wind and waves, but now something spiritual. And we get to chapter 5, and the, the question in this, when we start talking about these two individuals, is we see in them a heart of faith, and the question for us is, do you and I have a heart of faith? Do we possess faith? Faith is pretty easy if you know what the outcome's already going to be. 
Like, I'm going to get in my, in my vehicle at the end of service today, and I'm going to go home. Now, my, my vehicle has started for the last six months without issue. And because of that, I'm going to go out, I'm going to turn the key, and my expectation is it's going to start, it's going to get me home. That's the expectation. Now, somebody could sneak out of here this morning, open the truck, unhook the battery, and I would be stuck. But I'm trusting none of you are going to do that. So, so when I go out, I'm trusting that's going to start. And I trust that I'll make it home if I somewhat obey. I know I need to obey the laws on the way home. I don't need to run off the side of the road or any of that kind of stuff. I will get there. And so I, I sort of know what the outcome's going to be. So there's not really a whole lot of faith put into that. But what happens when we just don't know how it's going to turn out? Can we be a people of faith in that, in the middle of that? So I want us to pray first and just ask God to open our eyes that as we start looking through this, that we'll kind of put ourselves in those positions and say, God, do I have a heart of faith? So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. God, your word is full of testimony, full of the testimonies of those that that have either become, or are either people that lacked faith, they just weren't sure, or people that expressed faith. And God, help us to understand that there is very little distance between those that didn't have faith in you and those that did. And so, Father, help us to navigate that, that short distance between that we would be a people that have faith and trust you for everything that we need in every circumstance we go through. And God, we pray that you will make us a people of faith, that as we follow you, you will ingrain in us just the, just the starting place of trusting you with all that we are. And so, God, we ask that you would work again during this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and read through the whole passage very quickly, and then we're going to come back and, and hit sections, because this is one of those things where we're going to kind of bounce back and forth between the two folks that we meet in this passage, but we need to have a big picture of what it looks like. So would you stand as we read Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21? Mark chapter 5, verse 21 says, When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed by the seashore. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And so Jesus kind of follows through with that. He says, and he went off with him, and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him. So that's the first picture that we get, is Jesus is confronted by the synagogue official who comes up and says, my daughter is dying, I need you to come to my house. I need you to come lay hands on her so that she can live. 
In verse 25 it says, A woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak or his outer garment. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. So she touches him, or touches the hem of his garment, feels like she's healed. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in himself the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And you remember the picture, crowd pressing in. Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? Are you kidding? And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you, made you well, or daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Then verse 35. Now we're still on the way, right? And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only keep believing or believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, and entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? This child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him or mocking him. He said, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, come, which translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the little girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her to eat, which just seems to make sense. So we get two pictures of two different people that are learning what it is to express faith and trust in Christ. Faith expressed in Christ starts with knowing Christ, encountering him, knowing Jesus. You may be seated. There's two crazy stories here. We've read about Jesus teaching and going across the lake and the demoniac that's healed and coming to his right mind and things out of control. And Jesus shows back up on the other side and great crowd gathers. And this synagogue official, Jairus, comes to plead the case of his daughter. And I want us to understand, well, there's four things, but you have three of them in your bulletin this morning. The first thing, a heart of faith knows who can be trusted. A heart of faith knows who can be trusted. 
Jairus was the father of a very sick young girl. And he was a synagogue official. And so it, it meant that he chose who would be the ones that would read and do certain things in the synagogue. So there was some semblance of a relationship with God according to the law. And, and I really don't know a whole lot of background about this guy, except for at some point he came and needed to go outside of what was normal for him and come and encounter Jesus. We know that he was a husband and a father. We really don't know what kind of father he had been to that point. But we do know what he's like now. And we're going to talk about this a little bit because when we get a little further, we're going to talk about the risk involved. But this is what we know about him, that he was persistent. Because remember, there was a great crowd around, and this guy kind of breaks into the crowd. Everybody's wanting to get close to Jesus, but this guy breaks into the crowd. He's persistent in chasing him, and even through the crowd, gets to the front of Jesus. And I, I don't know, I guess in the, in the immediate need that this guy is faced with, the crowd means nothing. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had to get on the other side of a crowd because it was imperative. And we've been in the store before where, you know, whether it was Stephen or Becca, where they walked away from us in a store. And Becca had a habit of doing that. She trusted a lot of folks, trusted everybody, and so she would just, just kind of wander off. You know, we'd be sitting there looking at stuff, and she would just wander. And, and she really didn't go far. And she really didn't talk to, to too many folks. She'd say hi and stuff, and she wouldn't go anywhere like that. But what she'd do is, you know those round racks? She would get in the middle. And, and you've met Becca. She's not a big girl. And so when she got in the middle of the rack and was quiet, she was hard to find. And she loved it as a game. But, but mom and dad didn't love it as a game. And we didn't like it at all. And so we would go into this sort of semi-panic mode trying to find her, and she's like, I'm not saying a word. And so we, we just hunt and start looking, and you start looking under racks for feet, and, you know, anything you could do. And I'm wondering, this, this uh, synagogue official, he is at the point where his daughter is dying, and he's got to get to the front of Jesus. So the crowd means nothing. I imagine it really didn't matter, matter whether he was 5'5 five, five or 6'4. Him getting through the crowd, it didn't make a difference. He was going to push people out of his way. He was persistent. He was also pretty persuasive. And he came up to Jesus and, said, and began imploring and begging Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. And we really don't have a whole lot of the dialogue except for that that short phrase, come and heal my daughter, and I know that if you lay hands on her, she'll get well and live. But he didn't go into a long speech about how she got to where she was. He didn't say, hey, my daughter's been suffering with this for the last six months. She's been sick. She's gone to the doctor, all this kind of stuff. He doesn't go through all that. He just says, hey, you need to come. You need to come now. Because I know that if you lay your hands on her, she will be made well. So he's, he's pretty persuasive. He's also pretty passionate. Gets to the front of Jesus and pleads his case, and it's with an unwavering faith that he comes before Jesus and says, hey, I know that if you show up, things will change. 
I know, God, if you show up, things will change. Daughter is at the point of death, ready to take her last gasp of air. And Jesus agrees to go. He came to Jesus casting off the opinion of others. So it's different than the ones who were in that city before on the other side of the lake that said, we don't want to have hope. We don't want you to come in and bring hope to us. So instead of casting off, he comes to Jesus and says, well, I want to invite you in. I want you to stay. I want you to come to my house and bring healing. Just as a side note, it is never too late. It is never too late to do the right thing as a father or a husband. We don't know where this guy was. We just know what he's doing now. And in his mind and in his heart, he knows that going to Jesus is the right thing. That's never a bad move. So if you're a husband or a father and you go, I have messed up royally, you can come to Christ. You can come to him and say, God, bring healing to me. Bring healing to my relationships. Bring healing to my family. And allow God to do that work. Come in faith. Then in this passage, we have this break, this interruption. So Jesus says, yes, I'll go. He starts to go off to this guy's house. And this woman comes up. And, and I'm, I'm thinking about this, this guy, this father of his daughter who's dying, and this woman comes up and presses in and really interrupts the flow of life. Because isn't this guy in a hurry? It, it's not like this woman comes up and interrupts and the guy goes, oh, it's okay, let me just come over here and take a seat. I'll wait till you're done. You know that he's chomping at the bit. For, for Jesus to hurry up and get done with this lady so that we can move on to my daughter who's back at home. I'm sure he wasn't calm. He wasn't calm when he showed up. I doubt he was calm at this point. But she shows up, and this unnamed woman is introduced to us, and she is ill. It says that, says that she came up, and she had had a hemorrhage for 12 years, had endured much at the hands of the physicians. And we even get this little plug against physicians at this point because um, he says, endured much at the hands of many physicians and had, not, and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather grown worse. So, so the writer, or the, the, the one who's conveying this to us is going, doctors didn't do her any good. She spent all her money and it didn't help. So we get this little plug, this little poke if you will. And after hearing about Jesus, she comes up and says, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just get close enough, then I know I'll be healed. And she, was, she had spent her money, suffered sadly under, the, under various physicians to no avail. Her condition was worse, and she came to Jesus fighting for access to the hope that she wanted, that she was counting on. And so she gets close enough to touch the hem of his garment. Now, she's still fighting the crowd, just like Jarius did. She's fighting the crowd to get to Jesus. Same thing. So we have this, this parallel situation where both of them are looking for some kind of hope, and it's found in Jesus. 
So she gets there, touches the hem of his garment. She feels like she's healed, but Jesus recognizes that, that something has taken place. That even traveling in that large crowd, that something was different. Why is it, and this, this could go for both of them. She had checked with physicians. Or we don't know about the, the synagogue official. But why is it that Jesus is often our last hope? We, figure, we try and figure out everything else without him first. It's interesting that Jesus, when they come and approach him, he does not say, why did you go to all those physicians? Why didn't you come to me first? He doesn't get qualified their faith. He doesn't qualify their position with God. He doesn't, doesn't do any of that. He doesn't check to see if they've got enough money or have been to the right places. All he does was heal and bring healing and listen and do what Jesus does. And so the woman, fearing and trembling, tells her story while Jarius is sitting over here antsy on the side. And she tells her story. And it seems as though um, maybe the other ones in the crowd weren't so upset or frustrated with it because they started to understand Jesus is in control. And traveling in this large group as they're on their way, there's this, there's this calmness that just surrounds Christ. So they, they were folks that knew who they could go to and trust. So the heart of faith, first, is knowing who can be trusted. The second thing, a heart of faith takes the risk that may seem foolish. Takes the risk that may seem foolish. So when does following God make sense? When does it make sense? Have you ever been asked that question? If I follow God, it means I have to do this. Or if I do this, why? Now, I was asked that question when I went into ministry. Because immediately in going into ministry, took a pay cut. That doesn't make sense. That was part of it. And we could go around this room because some of you have made decisions that didn't make sense, but you knew it's exactly where God wanted you to be. You did something because you were following God and trusting Him that He would work it out because you felt like God was leading. And it may cause ridicule. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that woman as she comes up to him and touches the hem of his garment that, that somebody in the crowd didn't say, what are you doing? Why did you do that? And even, and even the, the father who risks, you, you know what he did to risk to come save his daughter, right? He was not at her bedside. I wonder if his wife said, I understand that you want to go see Jesus and you think this is a last hope, but what if she dies? You will not be here with her. Can't you take care of this from here? Yeah, obviously there were no cell phones, so he couldn't call Jesus, couldn't get on the mobile and, and say, hey, dude, if you'll just heal, heal her. That wasn't an option. So he leaves her side. 
And now we don't know if doctors have been consulted or any of that kind of stuff in his situation. And I'm just wondering, for both situations, did people not call them crazy? I think so. I think there were people that stood back and said, you're nuts. You're nuts for trusting that much. You're nuts for doing that. You're nuts for leaving what was comfortable and moving to something uncomfortable. The woman risked everything in her life and power proceeded from Jesus and, and he could tell that something happened. I don't know how that works. About, about the closest thing I can get to even explaining the idea that Jesus knew that he had been touched and power had gone out of him and it healed the lady was um, is thinking about when you're in a shower and somebody turns on a spigot in another room or flushes the toilet, something like that. You know, and the water changes. You know something has happened. You're not exactly sure what it is. Maybe something like that. But it changed in her life. And so she risked and he risked everything that they were about. The heart of faith knows who can be trusted, takes risks that may seem foolish. The third thing is the heart of faith reaps the reward of trusting and obeying God. He says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you has saved you. And then we look at this passage, and so she gets healed, and Jesus commends her for her faith, and then we get down, and people start to come along and say, the daughter has died. Jesus answered, only believe, keep believing. Then they get to the house, and a commotion is happening there, because the daughter has died. And Jesus says she's only asleep. So who's telling the truth? Did people not, were they not able to recognize when somebody died? I'm thinking there's a group of people that know this girl died. And Jesus comes along and says, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Different set of rules. God's in charge. And so he takes a few, the mom and the dad and his companions, into the room. And he touches her and tells her to rise. Tells her to get up. And it's, it's interesting that going in, that they ridiculed Jesus. They laughed at him. They, it, it actually means to deride or ridicule or express contempt. And so what they were doing is he arrived and they were mourning. All of a sudden, their demeanor changed. He says, she's asleep. They're saying, no, she died. And, and they, he says, no. And, and they begin to ridicule him saying, you have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. You don't have a clue. Jesus walks in and tells her to rise and she gets up, and the end result is immediately the girl got up, began to walk. She was 12 years old, and immediately they were completely astonished. And the, the Greek in that says that, that it throws one's mind out, is the way that reads. They didn't get it. It just blew their mind. That's what happened to the girl. She was healed. And everybody around looks at it and goes, um, speechless. Kind of out there. I don't get it. 
Then the last part of this, he gave strict orders that they should, that no one should know about this. I don't know how you avoid that. That's pretty funny, isn't it? Hey, there's a bunch of mourners outside that are crying, weeping, and wailing. And they got mad because I said that she was going to be alive. And um, now she's walking and she's eventually going to leave this house. What are those people outside going to think? You know they're not, it's not hidden. He says, uh, don't tell anybody about this. I, I think it's just kind of funny. Because even the ones outside are going to have their minds blown. Are going to be astounded by the little girl walking. And then they've got a question. Did we know she was dead? Or did Jesus do something miraculous? And they've got to come to grips with that. And we've got to come to grips with the fact that Jesus can do what he wants and he is worthy to be trusted. That we can trust him at every part of our life. It is the practical faith, maybe unreasonable as we would look at it, but a practical faith of the father and the woman both going to Jesus. And what did they, what, what happened? They did something. Our faith causes us to do things. Our faith does not encourage us to stay put or to stay sedentary, to stay in our seats. In fact, a lot of times when you read through the New Testament, it starts talking about faith and trust. It's not talking about faith as, as um, an adjective or a, a noun or something. It's talking about faith as a verb, to faithing, like trusting. We faithing Christ. We trust Christ. It's something that we do. And this father and this woman came up to Jesus faithing, doing something. Faith causes us to do things. James 2.20 says this, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, and, and this is the idea, that you could take faith and separate it from works. And he's saying, no, no, no. You can't do that. James says, um, you can't separate those. You foolish fellow, do you not recognize that faith without works is useless? Faith without works is useless. You know, our faith ought to be displayed in what we do. You say, man, I've got all kinds of faith, but I'm not doing anything. Well, how much faith does that take? It doesn't take a lot to do nothing. Faith causes us and causes us to jump into action. See, God works in the lives of those with a heart of faith, and he brings about an astonishment and an awe, not because of what we see, it's what God does through somebody. It's not what we get to do, it's what God does through us. It's, it's almost an uncontainable faith. It's, it's that piece of candy that seems kind of eh on the way in, but then you take one bite and it just kind of bursts forth in your mouth and just kind of fills your whole mouth with flavor so that your jaws feel like they're drawn in and your nose starts to run and all that kind of stuff. It's that kind of faith. You would say, man, I'm just, it's just incredible as I express my faith and do something that God just speaks into this and does the incredible that I didn't expect. 
The fourth thing that I want us to catch is a heart of faith takes one step further in biblical obedience. The heart of faith takes one step further in biblical obedience. When I was growing up, and we've mentioned this before a little bit, is um, you know, I did some ice skating. And um, you know, my goal was to, to make it and, and play some hockey in the town where we lived and all that kind of stuff. But I remember starting. I was scared to go to the rink. And so I put that off as long as I possibly could. But, but at some point, when you get to late elementary school and, and middle school, there's this pressure that comes, huh? pressure from peers. So you need to come. So, so it's like, okay, I'll go to the rink. And then it was, I'll stand by the side and watch you guys skate. Like, no, 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 you need to put on skates. So, okay, I'll put on skates and I'll sit here and I'll watch you skate. It seemed like a good plan. But then somebody goes, no, you need to come out here on the ice. And so you get out on the ice and you're hugging the rail for all it's worth. Like, I am not leaving this rail. And at some point, somebody talks you into just letting go for a, for a moment. And then you get off the rail and you start to move. And then you, you start to learn how to do that. And eventually you learn how to skate backwards and all those kind of things. It's a progression that takes place. But I want to tell you the progression of taking that one step further in, in whatever it is that you're pursuing, that those steps often require you to fail. And so there were times where I fell and had to get back up. You cannot fall in the middle of the ice and just stay there. There are a lot of things that could happen. The ones that already know how to skate can run over you. That's probably the biggest incentive for getting back up off the ice. That and watching your fingers. So, so when, you, when you go through something, you start to express faith and step out in obedience, sometimes it's, I made it this far, I fail. And then I get back up and I push it a little bit further and I fail and I get back up and push it a little bit further. All the time trusting that God is working in your life to bring about something that he's in the midst of. God is working in us to accomplish something through his people. And when we refuse to take the step of faith, then we cut God off. What if this lady or this dad had just said, too much crowd, can't do it. Not sure that Jesus can do that. And they just start backing out of the situation. What happens with the dad? What happens with the daughter? What happens with the woman? We don't have their faith expressed, and we don't have the astounding result that takes place in their lives because they were obedient to God. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.